Hey there, listener. Welcome to the Deep Share Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Rouse, and for the last couple of decades, I've slowly been opening my eyes to a very different world than the one I grew up hearing about. And the more conversations I have with interesting people, the more mystifying this world becomes. So without further ado, let's get deep. We've got science to celebrate David's bliss now. Come on! There is rebellion in the wind. It will be crushed. Everything I've said is true, it's real. Dinosaur fossils? I'll have to put those here to test our faith. A damn lie! I, I saw them on my own eye! Did I accuse just drop sharply while I was away? We did illusions, man! None of it is true! I'm not insane! This is mass madness, you maniac! In God's name, you people are the real thing! We are the illusion! Welcome back to the Deep Share Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Rouse. Tonight, I'm talking about alchemy. And it's a subject that fascinates me, but I don't know a lot about it. And I have someone joining us that knows a lot about it. Author Robert Bosnack. How's it going, man? It's going very well. And thank you very much for having me. And I'm very curious what this is going to bring. Absolutely. Yeah, me too. Me too. I have my own, you know, vague views on, uh, on alchemy mm-hmm. and I, I find it fascinating and it, it blows fascinating. my mind every time I learn something mm-hmm. new about it. Yeah, but, so yeah. I'm really excited to hear about it. And my audience as well, I'm sure will be interested to hear these, these different subjects that we talk about tonight. Um, let's give them a little bit of background into who you are and what you do. Okay. Um, so I've been working on uh, alchemy since 1971, so that's a little over 50 years. And um, I was fascinated by it. Uh, I learned it uh, when I was training to become a Jungian psychoanalyst at the Jung Institute in Zurich. Mm. And um, the question, uh, when does this training end, um, came up. And they said, when you can read Mysterium Conjunctionis by yourself. And Mysterium Conjunctionis is Jung's major work on alchemy. Um, and so I became very fascinated and started first to study Jung uh, in his notions on alchemy. And then I began to study alchemy itself. And I um, had enough knowledge of Latin to start reading it in the Latin texts and um, read um, mainly 15th century manuscripts because that's where uh, alchemy is at its height. It began to decline in the 17th century. That's what I, my series of novels is about, right? About yes. the 17th century, this break point where alchemy and science begin to move into each other. And then it ends up that alchemy disappears and science re, science appears. Yes. And that series is called Red Sulfur, correct? Red Sulfur, yes. And it's, um, it is the story of something that in my studies of alchemy, I found that there was... Uh, a ver- the last verified transmutation from lead into gold happened in 1666, and it was verified by um, reliable people. And then I thought, well, if that is true, then maybe everything else that the alchemists are talking about is true as well. And I can only explore that in fiction. So I started out with the historical uh a moment of the transmutation from lead into gold, the story of that. And then out of that, a very both romantic and interesting story about how alchemy and science struggled, what the world was like in the 17th century, when there was the battle between Protestantism and Catholicism, where the Inquisition was putting everything um, on the... Uh, uh, on a list of books that couldn't be read and all the alchemy was on there. And so um, there was a battle and then um, there was Galileo, Galileo who started science. The Mm. followers of Galileo called themselves scientists. So it was a cult of Galileo science. And um, so I'm following that and how it affects us now because it affects us profoundly. Yeah, I'm fascinated to hear more about that and read your book series. This is uh, this is exactly what I'm interested in, where th- this takeover of what we would consider modern day science, where this started, is one of the most contentious, 
I guess, subjects that we could talk about in modern times, wouldn't you say? Yes, because what happened actually was a big, the biggest shift that happened was that um, before the 17th, mid 16th, but mainly before 1600, when Galileo was active, before the 17th century, um, there was a notion that the way we could know something was by participating in it. So we become, would be part of it, and then it would be a communication. Because at that time, still, everything was alive. So the, the basically, everything was biology. So uh, for the alchemists, the metals are living beings. They are the seeds, so they are the children of the planets. And so the planets were alive for the alchemists. And um, in that time, we the, the, the alchemists in that whole worldview was that there was a firmament. So those were the stars. The stars were eternal. But then there was in between the eternal and the mortal was the field of the wanderers. The word planetos, planet, means wanderer. And so there were these wanderers in the sky that moved all the time, had different phases. And so they were already part of the mortal realm, but they were also part of the eternal realm. They were the world in between. And that world in between was called imagination. And imagination was real. Imagination was one form of reality. I like that. It kind yeah. of um, takes away this very popular notion that, you know, uh, imaginative, uh, even spiritual or religious beliefs, you know, just come from uh, primitive humans rather than this way of looking at it. Yeah, well, it was just more concrete um, acceptance of beyond material realm. Well, um, what happened was uh, the big change, the biggest change happened in the, the 13th century when um, uh, when there was one worldview, which was the Neoplatonic worldview. And in that worldview, there are three uh, realms of reality. There is the physical reality. There's the spirit reality, which is... Um, uh, like mathematics and it's abstraction. It's the, mm -hmm. the spirit realm. And then there is the realm in between, which participates both in the physical and in the spirit. But it is um, a reality in which the images are real, where there are real presences that you encounter and these real presences you can form a relationship with. So it's a world of reality. And then what happened in the 13th century was that we moved with the scholastics, we moved to Aristotle. We moved to the notion that there was a spirit and a body. And so with the third realm just dropped out. And that's where we got our whole spirit um, body or mind body conundrum. The mind body conundrum was fabricated. The mind body conundrum was fabricated in the 13th century because there was nothing in between mind and body. There was no longer the reality of imagination between. Right. Now, do you think when this middle middle part was thrown out, do you think this was pure ignorance or do you think this was mm -hmm. a matter of hierarchy, uh, secret societies, perhaps? Was no. someone holding on to the old way, the old wisdom of it? Um, well, there was a whole realm of people that were holding on to it and where it, it, it moved through. And um, uh, that was, for instance, Wicca, the mm. uh, people that were called witches and alchemists. Uh, it is the whole world of uh, what now would be the world of Harry Potter. It is the world of the magic that exists between logic and the body. There's a world in between, it's a world of magic. And um, we call it magic. They didn't call it magic. They right. called it true imagination. And um, but because true imagination dropped out, it came to be called magic. Mm -hmm. And um, of course, the imagination is magical. And um, uh, every dream is a, is a magical production. And um, we talked for a moment that you were working on a production, a big production, and how much work that is. But in a dream, in a fraction of a second, an entire world comes into being. Right. 
So uh, dreams are the greatest mystery of all. And that's what I spend my life on. My, my day job is basically I'm a dream explorer. I've worked with like 40 to 50,000 dreams professionally. I've traveled all over the world asking people, how do they dream? What do they dream? And I found a lot of commonality. Wow. And um, so that's my day job. But in <laughs> in my other uh, in one of my other realms, because I do a lot of things, one of my other realms, I study alchemy and see what influence that has on our world today and what the importance of alchemy is for the 21st century. It's great. And I mean, speaking of dreams, I'm sure you've made a lot of amazing correlations between how important dream your dreams are alongside your understanding of alchemy and how oh, the, absolutely the, yeah the dreams must represent one of the three realms at right. some you know <laughs> yeah because while you're dreaming you know that you're awake right you don't think you're awake you don't you know that you're awake in the same way that you know that you're awake now in dreaming in the same way you know that you're awake so mm -hmm. you are in a world that presents itself as waking reality and as it presents itself as waking reality, um, it becomes um, it becomes entirely real to you, and you are in that reality, and then you wake up from that reality into the waking reality, and then you wake up in your culture. And so your culture will say what a dream was. But I'm not interested in what your culture says about a dream. In China, they say it's a prediction of the future. Mm -hmm. In Aboriginal Australia, they may say it's a visitation of the ancestors. I don't care. What I care about is what happens while you're dreaming. You're in a reality. And I have developed methods to access that reality while waking and move back into a trance, into that state of dreaming, and then explore the dreaming from the dreaming perspective. And then when you do that, you get a lot of similarities between that and alchemy. I feel like I've heard this called like dream walking but are you referring to creative imagination because yes, i know you've uh, my 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 work is called embodied imagination embodied the imagination yes the way that our body lives imaginally in for instance in dreaming and in vision um i think a, a dream walker um is a little bit different i think that um uh, a dreamwalker is more of a notion. It, the dreamwalker becomes is, has been popularized lately very much in mm. um, Doctor Strange, where Wanda where Wanda is a dreamwalker. Oh, a dreamwalker yes. can move from one reality to another without any interference, and um, this is very important. For instance, I'm on TikTok, and I speak to people who are reality shifters on TikTok. It's a huge community, and they can move to the reality of Hogwarts. They can move in and be in Hogwarts and everything is alive and entirely real, as real as it is in waking. They call that reality shifting and some of them are masters at it. Uh, it's a very young crowd. It's between 16 and 24, I would say. And they're really good, much better than I am at it. And so I'm trying to communicate with them and that is a return of the world of the reality of that in-between realm. Mm. Wow. That's so that sounds almost like the matrix without technology. Like, exactly. It's the matrix without technology. And it's, what is interesting, it's the matrix without technology and without drugs. Right. Because, because uh, drugs, if you take ayahuasca, you can do this kind of stuff. Yeah. That's the perspective um, I've come from historically. Like that's my you know, piece of the puzzle here, you know, and but there's a whole generation out there that is after you that is now they, they are now between this Gen Z, mm. the Gen Z, there is tons of people who can do this without drugs, without technology, they are right. amazing. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> that's incredible. No, that's, that's great. I mean, that's what I've often thought about, because uh, even as of recently, we have a more popularization of psychedelics in the medical field. But we also have um, a lot of uh, in the abstract realm and history realm, we have books coming out about, oh, OK, now we have a little bit of uh, possible evidence that the psychedelics might be the root of our religious 
notions and stuff like that. And I immediately am throwing stuff at the, at the screen because it's so, I don't know how far back the, the, uh, how should we call it? Like a, the, a distraction or a misguided notion goes back to, but it seems like the psychedelics were in place of something that could have, that was understood to be done naturally in the beginning. No, well, the, 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 tr- the psychedelics are the means of transportation. Mm-hmm. Um, the world where you go to is the country. So people, right. mystics could go, had another means of transportation. They had the means of the passionate love for their Lord. They would move into that realm through the passion of love. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, uh, people who are doing it through uh, electronics can move into it through electronics. It's whatever vehicle you take. These kids right. are doing it by way of uh, shifting in um, in ways that you you should look it up. Uh, reality Absolutely. Um, and I I'm there uh, uh, on the Red Sulfur Saga, and um, I am called the Old Shifter. Cool. Um, <laughs> I'll definitely follow so, you. <laughs> so, but it, but that's the vehicle, right? Mm-hmm. The ve- the people make the um, misunderstanding that the vehicle is the country, right? Right. It's like saying the airplane is the country where you're going. Could you give? I mean, this is a personal question, but I'm sure many would would like to hear this. Can you give a a way to tell the difference while there? what's the difference between the vehicle, like possibly the surroundings of the vehicles or the feeling of the vehicle versus that country? Because I think uh, personally, I've, I've talked to a lot of people about how we bring the ineffable back into this material plane through language is absolutely insufficient. And mm-hmm. that every one of us has, a, we're, we're almost on it sometimes, but we can never name it. You know, we can well, the, allegory the, after allegory, but yes, yeah. you know, no, yeah, but th- this is not about allegory. Allegory is not really an image, right? An allegory right. is something you already know and you uh, you dress it up as an image. And sure. Yeah. So we're not talking allegory. And um, uh, Plotinus in the, the second century already said an allegory is um, a thought dressed up as an image. So that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> we're talking about images that present themselves in a particular way. Now, of course, the vehicle has influence on where you go. Mm. Um, That if you take ayahuasca, then you could uh, uh, probably go to nature spirits and it would be very vivid and uh, you would communicate with earth and all that kind of stuff. So the country that you're going to is a bit predetermined by the means of travel that you use. Okay. Um, and so these kids that I'm uh, talking to are going to Hogwarts. And that is their, that is both their means of transportation. Uh, J.K. Rawlings, uh, they call it the canon. Her canon is their means of transportation. Um, but that also um, uh, uh, determines where they end up. Uh, when uh, Hildegard von Bingen, who was one of the greatest mystics of all time in the 12th century, when she was in love with Jesus. So her um, her love affair with the divine was by way of Jesus Christ. And mm-hmm. so it it changes, your vehicle changes where you're at, the country where you end up, but the country that you end up is a real country. Mm. And unfortunately, we just have tons of people obsessed with their vehicles. <laughs> oh, absolutely. That is, but that has, yes, I mean, that's why people can sell so many cars. So I want to learn more about creative imagination because um, just on the surface of things, it reminds me vaguely of of some principles from uh, that I've heard through people like Neville Goddard, the idea that like the imagination is God, the imagination is the source of everything. Um, and that's that perspective, of course. But I'm curious to know more about your creative imagine or um, yeah. creative. So I, yeah, I have to give a, a prelude to that. Sure. Uh, because um, the man that you're talking about, Goddard, he says that the cre- uh, the imagination is the mind of God. Mm. So he go that is a metaphysical statement, right? I am a radical agnostic. I passionately don't know anything about ultimate things. 
So I don't know. Okay. So uh, that statement goes way too far for me. I have no idea. Maybe yes, maybe no. Maybe it is some kind of a stone over there that is dreaming us. I don't know. According to uh, the Aboriginal people that I visited, uh, their dreaming was the dreaming of the mountain that they then had to dance back to the mountain so the mountain wouldn't lose their memory. So, yeah, there's tons (laughs) of possibilities. Fair. Totally fair. (laughs) So... um, I I just I'm a phenomenologist, which means that I study experience, and um, I know that imagination is an experience of reality. It's a real experience, and um, it's a real experience all over the world. Because when you ask a person, "What did you dream?" you can ask it in any country to anybody. They will always say, "I was somewhere and something happened." Oh, that's always the answer. So a dream is somewhere where something happens and then you wake up. So it is a it is a, um, a country that or a place that presents itself as physical, but you wake up out of it. So it is quasi physical. It presents itself as physical, but it is something else than physical, but it presents itself as physical. That's what I call embodied. Mm-hmm. So that's why I call it embodied imagination, because it presents itself as fully embodied, yet not physical. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'm very interested in um, how this world exists. And then by way of that world, there's also magical things happening, that there are people that by way of that world can communicate with the physical realm. And um, like, for instance, um, uh, a Hawaiian man that I knew um, as I knew him like 40 years ago. So he was talking about his grandmother. So she must have been from like the 1870s. And uh, he said, um, I was walking on the beach with my grandmother and she saw a particular cloud and she said, oh, your uncle has died. The uncle wasn't sick, nothing. It just, oh. So she had access to the reality of imagination and then through the reality of the imagination access to the physical reality because two days later they got the news that he had actually died at that moment and so um there are ways that there is an interaction between um the um the imaginal world we call it imaginal because it's not imaginary imaginary Mm. means that it's unreal we call it imaginal um there's a, a communication between this imaginal world and the physical world we don't quite know how it works and that again is not of my interest i just know that it is um and um but what interests me very much is um the movement through that world how we move through that world and then my most uh, my main interest is how we then in an alchemical way shift perspectives so that we move from the perspective of the alchemist working on the metal to the perspective of the metal that is self-manifesting itself by way of the alchemist. So that is a perspective change. So I'm very interested in shifting perspectives. Understandable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So let's, I would like to kind of um, understand alchemy a little bit more from the perspective of, of these original alchemists and, you know, was there a, were they of a particular faith for the most part? Was it, was it intertwined in their work or was it set more separate back then than it would be today or vice versa? I guess kind of alongside that, how has alchemy changed from its, you know, beginnings to how it is today? Mm -hmm. Um, well, um, let me let me give you a historical overview. That's probably sure. the easiest. So alchemy came into being um, uh, around the year zero, 100 before zero, around that time, 2000 years ago, uh, in Egypt and that whole Sumerian delta. Um, it came from uh, the mummification process. The mummification process is about the eternity of the body, making the body eternal. It was based on dye making, dye making, uh, coloring cloth and the chemicals that were needed for uh, coloring cloth. It came from um, uh, herbology, how herbs would work on the body. It came from um, astrology, 
because astrology was really emerged in Sumeria. And um, it came from um, uh, it came from medicine. So how how healing would work, and from metallurgy. So um, the the beginnings of uh, the smith and that. So that all slowly came together and formed one discipline, which was the discipline of alchemy. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that all got together, and then. Um, it moved together into this Neoplatonic tradition that I was talking about, that is where the imagination is a form of reality and where they could communicate directly with all these entities and let the entities tell them what they wanted to do and the visions that would come out of that. And so um, I think that the uh, the alchemist would be, there's all, uh, for a long time, they were mainstream. Mm -hmm. um, and then they uh the moment that we moved into this notion that there's a mind and a body then they would be move into a more uh peripheral uh movement and because they kept on noting that you can talk to the world and the world will talk back so that when uh um a witch in the good sense of which not in the way that it was being used to persecute uh people from wicca but mm. what a witch would do, or a wizard, is they would talk to the plants and they would find, the plant would talk back. And from that, they would find which plants to use in what situations, because the spirit of the plant would talk back to them. Mm. And that is the notion of participation. So they would be participating in the same way, and there would be a mutual communication going on. That is the notion of alchemy. That is the notion of Wicca. That is the notion of that whole era. And that kept on going. What happened then in the 17th century is that it split, alchemy split into chemistry. The first, the father of chemistry is Robert Boyle, who Boyle. was one of the great alchemists. Uh, so Robert Boyle was an alchemist, and but also the father of chemistry. Isaac Newton was an alchemist and the father of physics. And um, so it began to split. And then the Rosicrucians in the beginning of the 17th century started to make alchemy a spiritual discipline. And then uh, the material side went into chemistry. And so then it split up. Um, and there are now people who are doing physical alchemy, but I know nothing about that. So mm -hmm. that you should ask somebody who is now doing physical alchemy. My interest in alchemy is that... Um, <clears throat> it works with the way that imagination embodies itself as matter. Right. And so um, we are dealing with that all the time. Now, anybody, we, we talked about vehicles, just see how intensely related people are to their cars, right? Mm -hmm. There is a communication going on with you and your car. If your car makes problems, you start yelling at it. <laughs> and uh, if... Uh, um, if uh, the car uh, has, uh, if you break with your car, something happens to you. So there is a communication that it keeps on going. So that is an alchemical way of being. And, and our rational self says, yeah, that's all nonsense. But that's an <laughs> imaginal way of communicating with matter. So it still happens. Right. That's interesting. The, the way you, the example you gave of, um, you know, speaking with the plants like that open communication that's literally what the the people say uh was the origin of ayahuasca like the reason why those tribes were able to you know put those two very different yeah. plants together was by speaking to the plants right and that and that is um uh that was the common way of doing it Mm -hmm. um until a certain part and it i think it reached its height in the west in paracelsus um in the mid 16th century and um but that that we can communicate with um the world is something that we lost and it has enormous ecological consequences but if because if you participate in the world and if you're part of the world then cutting down a rainforest hurts Right. hurts you because you're part of it if you have moved into a state of subject object in the split between subject objects then the trees and the rainforest are just things and then you can just 
use them whatever you want to do because they're not alive not really alive the trees are alive but yeah, yeah it's but like a no passive consciousness yeah yeah and no consciousness whatsoever no 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 the notion that a tree is consciousness yeah true yeah yeah belongs to that other world passively living yeah 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 existing and um so uh but if we can get back to the notion that we are in a state of participation with the world and that the world talks back to us and that we can communicate with the world if we get into that then our uh, attack on the planet will become much less fierce because we have to deal with the fact that you can feel when it happens mm. like um like aboriginal people could feel when they start to do uranium mining because the uranium mining was, of course, in sacred territories because they knew that the uranium had something, some kind of spirit. So they knew it was sacred ground and they knew that you wouldn't start touching it and digging there. And so when they started to dig, then Aboriginal people got very, very angry and, and big struggles started to break out. Um, but for, of course, the white people, just a, a resource. Right, right. And it seems like that... Um that way of life is, uh, you know, put the pedal to the metal the past 10 years. And we're looking into a very technologically driven, controlled uh, future in a lot of ways. Yeah. And but then the, the question is also, of course, are we creating the technology or is it a mutual creation? Is the technology creating itself? And um, if you look at, for instance, um, I am working very much on um, artificial intelligence and on um, uh, uh, empathic artificial intelligence. And uh, if you look at that field and the field of virtual reality and, and all that, then it seems as if it is creating itself. Um, when uh, when asked, one of the leading uh, people that created VR said, when I created this element of VR, if I hadn't created it, somebody else would have, because it seems as if technology is creating itself. Mm -hmm. And if you if you look if you look back uh, in the first uh, notion of um, uh, of technology, of computer technology from Neumann um, with the cellular automata. It's very similar to what is now happening with artificial intelligence. There's 70 years between that, but it's a clear unfolding of something. Mm. And it seems as if we are discovering technology. We're not creating it. We're discovering it. And, it is, and so that's the alchemical view. The alchemical view would be that technology is creating itself with our help and we are communicating with technology very different from the notion that we have control over it. yeah yeah that and it resonates with me the idea of unfolding uh mm -hmm. this that that we're being uh, maybe not pulled towards something but that it's well i mean outside of this exact experience there is no linear time either that's been talked about a number of times in a number of different fields about how you know, th this experience we're given now has linearity to it but outside of that is maybe not chaos that may not be the best word for it obviously but not linear time by any means all things happening at once perhaps is a better way mm -hmm. to put it and from that perspective right there then yeah it says a lot of different things about creation compared to the way we see them for mm -hmm. sure yeah um uh well um uh, that's also in science we know in from science and from the beginning of relativity theory we know that different constellations have different time so um the notion of time a universal time is a very dubious notion because the time time works different in different systems mm -hmm. and um but also in consciousness when um uh when for instance um a baseball player, a good baseball player, um, gets a fastball thrown at him at 100 miles an hour in their ability is that it slows down. And so they, they can slow that down and see it go slow enough so that they can hit it. And um, so time is a very uh, dubious thing. And of course, if you go into the quantum world, time can jump backwards and forwards. But that is on a uh, on a level that is um, so small 
that I don't know how it influences our regular world that is much more complex than that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, there is something I wanted to ask you. I, I, anything to do with alchemy, it, it reminds me of this um, this situation we're in right now where um, the, the fear of death is still a very, very, very prevalent thing. I think at a, at a very intense level in humanity, um, you'd, it's like, okay, it was that way for a long time, of course, with the way religion is presented and accepted. Obviously it's been the main thing, the main fear forever, but at the same time, the idea of, this transhumanist future that we're moving into the idea of you like technology, no longer being tools that we use technology becoming part of us out of this material desperation to stay here and conscious longer and longer and longer towards infinite life or something like that. And I, I see a lot of kind of like, dare I say a swindling in the language surrounding what we're talking about right now, consciousness, alchemy, where the physical, the body is losing importance in a lot of the language, a lot of the Kurtzweils and all these people that are driven yeah, in Kurtzweil that direction. Kurtzweil is wrong. Kurtzweil is I, wrong. Thank you for he saying that. He is completely that. wrong. It, it's, because, yes. Yeah, he did absolutely wrong because um, this notion that you can transplant uh, consciousness to silicone is bullshit. Thank because, you, Robert. And it is bullshit because the enzymes are the consciousness. Uh-huh. So, so you cannot just transplant enzyme consciousness into um, into uh, silicone consciousness. It's different. It's completely different. What will happen is that there will be uh, life forms that will come from this silicon reality and it may be um, maybe from the quantum reality if that the whole boondoggle of quantum computing ever happens and I don't mm-hmm. know if it will because they can't stabilize the qubits but um, there will be another kind of awareness consciousness developing but it's not human consciousness so the notion that you can transpose uh, consciousness into a machine is the biggest deceptive bullshit I have ever heard. Thank you, Robert. Like seriously, that, that hits home really hard because this is a topic I talk about often and uh, the, yeah. And how important it is that w- at, again, at the core, the fear of death is what will drive us there more than anything else. And uh, I think well, that- well was developing is was trying to develop it to save his father Yes, and um, uh, and create eternal life uh, through for his father, and now he's trying to create it for himself. He's going to fail, yeah. and he's going to fail big time with great disappointment. But he didn't anyway, read Shelley. He should have read Shelley. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. Yes, um, Mary Shelley, and so she. Um, uh, it, that's the voice of a woman, and that's the Frankenstein is the voice of a woman. Mm. Uh, no, but the boys do that. And um, I think that um, the fear of death is very important. Um, if we didn't have a fear of death, um, there wouldn't be a survival drive. The survival mm. drive is based on the fear of death. It's just not the only beings we are. I My notion is that we are a multiplicity of beings and um, that we are a network of beings, a network of entities that... Uh, work together. I see that in dreams and I see that in all the work that I've done mm-hmm. and um, in my fields of psychoanalysis um, that is now a more or less a common notion that we are a multiplicity of states that hang together relatively loosely and constantly reorganize and self-organize. So um, the fear of death is one of the states and a very important state mm-hmm. and um, uh, it's an animal state because the, the animal, I think, once the animal is confronting death with literal animals, I don't know, because literal animals go out alone frequently and die. Um, but our animal selves are afraid. And as we are dying, we have to take care of them. And I had a friend who was dying, and his last night in his life, he spoke to his animal and say, we have to go now. I know that you're scared. This is terrifying. I can feel the terror and all that. 
he had to talk his animal off the ledge. Uh, so there's an animal fear of death that we have, and we shouldn't disregard it because right. it's true. If you, the moment that you get diagnosed with cancer, you get into that. You cannot avoid it, right. but you have to realize that it's one of the selves, one of the many selves. And that is a very important self because it triggers the body's self-healing response. It triggers the survival spirit. So it's a really important thing and it should never be knocked. The fear of death is really important. We should not try to get rid of it. And so, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead by all means. Yeah, no, it, so this is, becomes really important in, uh, in my novel series, Red Sulfur, because one of, the, one of the goals of alchemy, of course, is eternal life because it comes from the mummification process. Mm. And um, that uh, the notion of red, red sulfur is the philosopher's stone. It's what the alchemists call the philosopher's stone or the right. sorcerer's stone. Uh, the, the material that can trans, transmute anything into anything else because right. it has complete freedom of creation. And um, uh, so it is also thereby participates in eternity. So there's also a struggle that these alchemists go through when they have the possibility to gain eternal life. They don't want it because just can you imagine how incredibly boring it would be to have eternal life? Right. So um, death is also the spice of life. It makes life Contrast, poignant. right? Yeah, it, it makes life poignant. It makes life um, uh, precious. And I'm, I'm 74 years old. Mm -hmm. I am realizing that I may have, if I'm lucky, I may have 10, 12 creative years left, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so they become very precious. So the, the fact that I am closing in on death or death is closing in on me or whatever you want to say <laughs> is really important because every moment becomes more precious as I move closer to death. So the fear of death is really, really important. I like that. Uh, question about what you said earlier about this kind of loose connected group of selves or souls. Um, how would we work that into or against the old concept of we are all one this you know there's only one thing really happening behind all illusion it's yeah, all that's that's monotheism <clears throat> yeah, it still monotheism. is monotheism like oh, as in you don't yeah because if you say that that all is one that is the definition of monotheism fair okay uh, true right and so um uh, so the um i think that um there are many first principles this is a first principle uh, all is one. Mm. I think it's one. All is one is one of the many first principles. Um, uh, you can say that um, uh, all is goddess, or you can say all is God, or all is many gods, or all can be many things. And the notion of all is already a problem because is there all? So you move closer and closer to what you just said to the ineffable. The ineffable no longer has words. And so right. it's it's purely presence. So you can begin to sense presence. And that is because you can experience presence. That is the ultimate that I can accept. I can accept that there is presence, but what the presence is like. And if it's one or many or, um, or potato salad, I don't know. <laughs> Perhaps uh, as above, so below has like there should be like an asterisk and there should be like and everything in between or something <laughs> like that maybe there's more you know because i often get stuck in this duality while i'm here in this duality of imagining a here and a there you know mm -hmm. for lack of better terms um and then i've had other people in my life uh you know someone who practices meditation and buddhism and is very deep into this kind of describe it as like well yeah there's there's the as above and below but there's many many layers to it or something like that so yeah. it's it's a similar notion i guess I've, I've always had that conundrum about that yeah the in um in many of the spiritual traditions um there is a below and an above and uh, the angels in between. It's called mm -hmm. angelology and it's uh, the study of angels. It's the study of um, the realms in between the above and the below. Mm -hmm. um, but the notion as above, so below is that we, that we are 
an instantiation that we are a, uh, that we are an example of cosmos of mm -hmm. order and so macrocosmos and microcosmos are the same right. because we are an expression of cosmos so we can study cosmos by studying ourselves or many selves or ourselves and uh, then by that we study cosmos because we study the inner world of cosmos because everything somehow is in some form of connection to the presence of cosmos then what you're telling me right now um, makes me think of Mandelbrot set and and fractal geometry. It's, it reminds me of that a lot. I was curious if your work with alchemy um, has, or even dreams have uh, bumped up against fractal well, notions of the of nature yeah. and things like that. Yeah, well, it comes up all the time because <laughs> um, the notion of fractal geometry is part of chaos theory. And chaos theory says that uh, when a form exists, uh, it moves through a period of noise and then it becomes signal again. And then you can you can read the signal and the Mandelbrot fractal is a beautiful signal. And you can read the signal again it moves into another scale it becomes noise again and then in the next scale it suddenly becomes signal again so the the the, the movement between signal and noise is a very important um, movement in dreaming and because if you look at a dream from one perspective then that over there is noise uh, and if you start moving to another perspective then that over there is noise mm. so the, the the it's this information theory so um the the relationship between signal and noise um between what is actually fractal geometry and what is pure noise that is really important in the work on dreams in the work on alchemy because you can work for a long time on something that doesn't matter and if you work on a, for a long time on something that doesn't matter, then you will never get to signals because you constantly are in something that is peripheral. You never get to the essence. And the alchemists were very emphatic about it. They say, if you take the wrong raw material, you'll never get anywhere. Wow. That, man, that's, that kind of sounds like... Uh you know, chasing rabbits, chasing rabbits down rabbit holes, almost, <laughs> you know, from my perspective, being kind of like conspiracy theorists a lot, it, it, you know, you're chasing things and you put things into a priority set. And if this is true, then this, this, and this, but if your second step is bullshit, but you're attached to it, you're going to create entire illusory realities beyond mm -hmm. that point. And if you're not stopped or don't stop yourself, they can fractal out of control. Right. So, but what I think about conspiracy theories, and I think that they are very important, they've become uh, the essence of American politics. Um, uh, any theory that explains everything must be a delusion. Right. So um, any system that you cannot doubt that is undubitably true is delusional. So if you end up in a world where everything is explained and everything becomes self-explanatory, you can be sure that you're in a delusional system. So everybody should check whether you can doubt your system. If the system allows doubt, then it's not yet a delusional system and it does not become an entire conspiracy theory because you can never get into a total conviction. If you are if you are in a conviction of a conspiracy theory, you're convicted by a delusion. Wow. I really like the way you put that. That's, that's important. I think that really needs to be applied more often. I um, think so. Yeah. It's, it's, it's psychiatry. It's psychiatry 101. For sure. Yeah. yeah. So that being said, with a lot of the different topics we've been talking about tonight, um, what do you think is the major importance of alchemy and the concepts that come along with it for people now in the 21st mm -hmm. century and 2022 and the world we live in right now mm -hmm. um well we have just gone if you look at al alchemically um what, what has just gone on um we have just um, moved into uh, a period of what the alchemist called nigredo Negredo is where the material falls apart, where everything becomes chaos, where things become sick, uh, 
where where uh, where the dogs are at war with each other. Um, that is all called Negredo. It's a period of where um, one state of consciousness, one state of awareness is falling apart, and the new state of awareness hasn't come in yet. It's called the interregnum between the reigns. So it in the alchemy, it is um, uh, demonstrated as the drowning of the old king. And so you see an old man with a long beard and a crown drowning in a lake. It is the moment of the disappearance and the dissolution of the old consciousness. So everything starts to melt again. And so we are in a period of the great melting and everything that was fixed is uh, becoming fluid. Now, as this happens, a lot of people start to run back. They start to run back to a time when they had the illusion that things were still stable. Mm -hmm. So that is trying to get out of the um, out of the Negredo in a regressive manner, regressing back to a period before when the, the period before the black period um, and black years, the black of night. Uh, before the black period was the green period. So you look back to when paradise still existed, when there was America was still great. Well, it was great for some people, but not so great for other people. Right. Um, and, um, but if you now, so you have a choice, right? This is a, a talking purely alchemical. You can try and move to the previous state back to the green world and you will always fail because the green world didn't exist. It was always a mess. And so um, if you but if you can move on and go to the depth of that negredo that we're in, you will get to the blues. And in the blues, we are sad about what we've lost. We are sad about what is going on right now. We are sad about that what uh, was so clear to us a few years ago is no longer clear to us. So we have lost clarity. So that's the blues. And as you stay in the blues, you get into soul. And then as you move into soul, then thereby we can move, according to alchemy, you move into the light blue, which is the emergence of a new spirit. And that emergence of a new spirit is the new spark that is rising. And so that would be the forward movement. And so you can see that already alchemy has incredible political implications. Mm. Um, if you just look at it against that background, because you mirror it with an other background and the background creates the foreground. We know that from any form of Gestalt psychology that the background and the foreground are related. And so if we put a background of alchemy to it, that this is a, 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 a a transmutation process that we're in that is going through the matter of the world that we're in, the cosmos that we're currently in. And uh, social media is part of it that creates um, a lot of this uh, fountain of um, chaos. And so there's a lot of signals, there's a lot of noise. So that's all part of the Negredo. How you deal with the Negredo becomes very important. You go backwards or you go forwards. Yeah, it's interesting you say like, you know, if you can go to the depths of it, um, mm -hmm. that sparked my this thought about how this just literally reminds me of uh, the individual, you know, regressing back to past traumas, facing them head on and being able to consciously move forward in their life finally. And, and yeah. And then the first thing that you have to do when you get back into, yes, you're absolutely right. Once if, since we are living in a traumatic period of the world, that is mm -hmm. clearly traumatic, obviously traumatic. Um, we are all thrown back to our own personal traumas. That's what happens in a traumatic period. Mm -hmm. So if you can deal with those traumas, not from the perspective of you caused my trauma, right. but from the perspective of this is so sad that I had to go through this. It is so, and I am mourning the life that I could have had, but I didn't have because of my trauma. You feel this state of mourning, you get into the blues, and that is actually a forward movement. That's great. Yeah, I love making that connection. Uh, often I I, I kind of go between these two ideas where it's like on a societal level at least in my community my perspective is that we're digging into history we're kind of uncovering 
what's been glossed over in many, many eras of history. And, you know, once again, the individual has to do that. It has to go back into its own history and realize what was, what were the conspiracies my ego was running against myself to make me forget, to put me in these patterns. Right. It's, it's Mm -hmm. again, it's this fractal notion. But it's not just your, it's not just your, your ego. It is your mm. whole setting. I mean, it's your parents. It's where your parents came from. It's your culture. All that the notion of ego is a um, is a very individualistic Western notion. Yeah. Um, and um, there are several languages that don't have the word I. Um, so uh, we are always in a network. So the, the notion that you can distinguish yourself from your network is nonsense. You're always, your network lives in you, lives through you, you're part of it, you're networked. And um, and if you feel not networked, then you're in a state of intense loneliness. Right, nihilism, isolation, all those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I really like this talk, Robert. I really appreciate the work you're doing and I love what I learned tonight, this really gave me a much broader perspective on some of the things I'm most passionate about, you know, learning about consciousness. So I really appreciate this. Uh, Could you tell my audience where they could find you? Um, Well, they, um, I would love it if they would start looking at my novels. Absolutely. Um, Because yes, because my novels actually um, is a way where where I created an alchemical world in which you can move around that is fascinating, that has love stories in it, that has triangles in it. Um, But it shows you what we lost and what we could gain. And um, it shows you the psychology of alchemists and the psychology of that world. And so you can find all that in redsulfursaga.com. Or you can find it directly in Amazon. Red Sulfur Saga is the website. And um, then if you want to follow courses that I've done, there's many courses that I've done on jungplatform.com. And um, you can find many of my lectures on alchemy there. But I would suggest you start with fiction because fiction can represent alchemy in a way that makes it that you can feel it, that you can feel it, what it does to you now. And um, uh, if you if you like romantic novels, it's for you. If you like science fiction, because this is 17th century science fiction. Yeah. If you like science fiction, this is perfect science fiction because science fiction has always been written about the future. Mm. I write science fiction about the past. <laughs> and um, so uh, it becomes very interesting. The, the note, it's, it's as real as Dune, uh, but it is in the context of real historical events of this battle between Protestantism and Catholicism over the emergence of science. And there were wars fought, uh, 30 years, 50 years wars were fought um, over these issues. And um, I put all that in that context. So it's also science fiction of the past. It's a love story of the past. And I hope people will take a look at it. I can't wait to read it. It's next on my list after talking to you. It really is. I can't wait because this is exactly what I think we need more of. And I know there's plenty of authors out there that are starting to kind of do this more and more. Fiction is one of the best ways to, to get the truth across. I mean, I think we see it a lot in Hollywood too. Um, But uh, I, I think that's a really good way to do it because it really puts you into a perspective where you can understand the people. I think a lot of times when things uh, are misunderstood or scoffed at or or just disregarded. It's because the person isn't putting themselves in the shoes exactly. of an individual that was going through it and to see exactly. how real it is and how ah, real it could be, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Totally agree. So Robert, this has been great. Thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on. And I think everybody else listening would will, will really appreciate it too. So thanks again. And thank you very much. And good luck with the project of your uh, series of uh, audio work. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Everybody, thank you so much for listening, watching, checking this out. And go check out Red Sulphur. Uh, Yeah, I can't wait to read it. Good night. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Deep Share Podcast. If you want to hear more, then hit that subscribe button. Follow me on all the social places, and remember, think for yourself.
but don't always believe what you think. Till next time. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, pacifaria. Enough, I got the point. <laughs> you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. <laughs> and you will atone. What do we know? What do we know? If I know what we know, well, then I can tell you what we know, and if someone else knows, okay? <laughs> <laughs>MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C.